Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, let's go to the Word today. I'm continuing to finish, actually, I'm finishing, I should say it, our series entitled Citizen Christian. And today we're going to look at justice in society. Justice in society. And as we go to the Word this morning, I want to begin with two verses that launch our message for today. First of all, Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? I also want to read from Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. Listen to these words as the prophet Isaiah echoes the same essence message. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. I begin with these verses this morning for a specific reason that I'll unpack a little bit as we move through the message today. But justice is a very challenging issue because it is the point where theory intersects practice for a wide array of topics. It becomes so much of the guiding principles for application of our faith as we try to live it out in the different areas of our life. I'm not referring so much to the judicial system as we've talked a lot about our nation and its structure. Obviously, I do believe that you will hear many of the echoes that I would call foundations for our judicial system, but I am speaking specifically to what it looks like for the church to labor for biblical justice in our society. Andrew Walker is a professor of ethics and public theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he says this, that there is a critical error in evangelical thought at the present. There is an uncritical embrace of social justice and a heavy-handed disavowal of social justice. And the task for Christians is to approximate the biblical view of social justice without running to the extremes. The reality is that biblical justice exists and the application of God's moral righteousness to address contemporary social evils and dilemmas. He strikes at the heart of the challenge, not only of this message, but of you and I as followers of Jesus Christ and trying to live out from the moral and the redemptive aspects of the scriptures And what it reminds us is that our command is to pursue justice in the world. And that's no easy task, but neither is it beyond the compelling power of Jesus' love and his will for us. What I want you to walk away with today, friends, is this. That Christ followers are commanded and compelled by love to pursue justice in the world that demonstrates the righteousness of our creator, God You see, true biblical justice always flows out of a right worship of God. When worship goes awry, justice falters. Or it would be more accurate to say justice gets perverted. So that good gets called evil and evil gets called 
good. And that's exactly what's taking place both in the context of Micah's words and in the context of the prophet Isaiah's words. Two passages that remind us of the high nature of our mandate. These passages have been influential even in the founding, in the direction of our own country. Micah 6, 8 cast a large influence over the founding of our laws as a nation. As it stands as the motto of the alcove of religion in the reading room of the Congressional Library of Washington, D.C. And I want to just take a moment to talk about the three imperatives that Micah gives to us as a launch for beginning to look at biblical justice. Micah gives as the first imperative an action. An action. Act justly. Do justice, he says. This stands in stark contrast to today's what I call a conscience-salving awareness practice. So often I see in society that Christians have belittled our responsibility for justice or to speak truth into the world down to simply an activity of awareness making. If I make you awareness, I've satisfied my own conscience for my responsibility. And that is not the extent of our responsibility before God. It is surely part of it, but more the beginning than the culmination itself. And so he says to us, act justly, do justice. For the Christian, justice demands a personal involvement by our action. You'll often hear me talk about servants live with dirt under their fingernails. Why? Because We've gotten where the work needs to be done. And that is true in this realm as well. That is what Micah is commending to us in this first imperative. The second imperative, he says, is not only to do justice or act justly, but to love kindness. And the word he uses there is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is the Hebrew word that the Old Testament uses for God's covenant love. The love with which he has given to us that brings us into relationship with him in redemption. And what Micah is committing us to is to say that of the highest priority, Christians demonstrate mercy in their activity and in their words because we are people who've been shown mercy by God. That everything we say, everything we do, comes out of this relationship that we have with God. And not only what we say, but in the very way in which we say it should be one that reflects the mercy of our covenant-loving God. The third imperative is that we are to walk humbly. And he reminds us here that we are walking with God in the world. And as such, we are his ambassadors among the world. You see, the work that Christians do in Jesus' name is the true expression of our religion. Our religion is catalyzed on Sunday morning as we gather. It is fueled, if you will. We are strengthened for the work, but this is not the sum total of it, that what we do together has an eye on what we are doing in the world, each one of us. And the scripture tells us that true religion pursues justice to guard God's good for people in the earth. We've seen this throughout this series that 
that we've talked about how God in his creational command and his creational mandate of Genesis 1 and 2 wants, desires, and intends for good for all people. That is his will. And that is what the prophets are declaring here. If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, listen to the fundamental foundation of the law that Moses, the great prophet, declares that surely all the other prophets are drawing from. And listen to the progression of God's intention, even in the law, to bring good upon the earth. He says this, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, worship. To walk in all His ways, obedience. To love Him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. When the New Testament tells us that we have been endued with power from on high and sent as faithful witnesses... These verses are the very essence of what it means for us to live as faithful witnesses in the world. It is not just our words, though they are critical and necessary and essential. It is our whole life that must be lived before a watching world. And so the prophets command God's people to do justice because it is His work in creation for redemption. It's the foundation of our work, friends. We're not trying to subvert the, the common good. We're not trying to subvert God's creational command, but rather we labor for it to build a foundation out of which we can speak and preach and declare redemption in Jesus Christ. You see, there is no true justice without God because true biblical justice transpires when God himself shows up. And so we don't need to subvert Scripture. We need to anchor, to build on it. And God shows up. How does God show up in the world? When Christians walk with Him in obedience to His commands and bear faithful testimony for good in the world in our pursuit of justice. Now, now what is justice? I think a simple working definition is at hand here for us. We need that. One scholar D.A. Carson says it this way, that justice is the right treatment of people that is their due under the law. This is so fundamental. And it didn't start with America. It didn't start with humanity. It has its origin in God. The right treatment of people that is their due under the law. And which is not to be neglected specifically by the judges for their own benefit. You see, the whole teaching of the law consists in this, the right treatment of God and the right treatment of other people. Jesus teaches this, love God, love others, right? But the problem is we've defined love as a sentiment, as an emotion, as just an internal inclination of some sort and not an outward working. And what the law does is it commends us to work out what it means to love other people. But friends, there's more to justice than just fair and equal treatment of people. And this is where the Christian aspect becomes distinct in the world. God is moral in every way. He is not less than moral. 
Surely morality begins and is consumed perfectly in God. And he is honored through morality. But that is not his highest glory. You see, the purpose that we hold in this world is that we labor to demonstrate God's higher glory in seeking justice. And that is the glory that comes through redemption in Jesus Christ. For the Christian... Seeking justice means laboring for the justness or the righteousness in which all have fallen short. This is our aim, friends. This is our purpose for being here. And so when we talk about justice in society, we are building a foundation upon which the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ finds its own establishment and can use that which is To declare the one who is forevermore. I want to outline four distinctives of biblical justice. And understand a framework for what it means for justice to exist in society. The Bible is not absent of this. The law of God has established this. And you will hear echoes of our own system of justice throughout this. But understand, I am looking at what the scriptures have declared to be God's design for justice. I'll begin in the 16th chapter of Deuteronomy. If you want to follow along, I'll give you the verses, but I don't have for the sake of time the opportunity to read each of the verses today. The first distinctive of seeking biblical justice in the world is this, that seeking justice demonstrates the glory and the character of God in the world. The good of humanity and seeking justice in this world bears a glory that is distinctively God's. And this is the beginning of a faithful Christian testimony and witness. What transpires in Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 18 through 20 is that Moses outlines a structure for people to be able to see God's good and God's glory in order to experience his love through justness in the world. And the first Outline of this is that justice begins with the appointment of judges and officers who judge at a local level. In other words, he's creating a system. He's creating a structure whereby justice can be established in the world. And the way he does that is to begin with local judges judging people and appointing their officers who would ensure that those judgment would be carried out. You see, judgment, excuse me, justice demands a shared responsibility among the people. Justice is not just given to the officers, it is given to every person. And every person should understand justice because they have a shared responsibility for the greater whole of society. If you'll remember, Moses was judging all of the people. And and if you'll you'll conceptualize this, they estimate that, that roughly when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were about two million strong, just rough estimates. Two million people, one judge. That is a loaded document right there, doc right there, uh, not document, but doc as in schedule. And, and he was overwhelmed and his father-in-law came to him and said, you can't do this all by yourself. You're not God. Even Moses, the greatest prophet of all, had to be reminded that he was not God. And so he began to create a system and a structure whereby the judgment would begin to take place locally. Why? Well, that's what we see next. The local level provided the best context for justice because it depends on relationship between people. 
You should be judged where you are known. That's why even in our system today, it's a jury of peers, at least theoretically. And so when situations would arise that couldn't be settled locally, there was a system or a structure where they could appeal to higher judges. But understand this, higher judges only served to strengthen local justice, not to subvert it. When a decision could not be made at the local level among those judges, they could appeal to a higher level. But the purpose of the higher level was not to subvert the process at the local level, but rather to strengthen it and to bring law and order back into the system of of justice. And so justice from judgment to sentencing all the way through was to be carried out locally among the people. That's what Deuteronomy 16 is teaching us. And then thirdly, there is a righteousness that provides the rule of judgment. The rule of judgment. So the rule of judgment wasn't dependent upon the judge nor upon the officers that were put into place. Nor was it even dependent upon the whole council of all the people in that locale. But rather, it was the righteousness of God from his law. And that law being the articulation of his practical righteousness, if you would, that would provide the rule for justice. And Moses establishes this, that that it was wrong to pervert justice. And there were two principal ways that justice would be perverted. Number one, by partiality. By partiality. In other words, because of the individual doing the judging and the sentencing, they were not to use personal preference about what they thought about some situation or scenario, but rather they were to adjudicate in accordance to the rule of law, righteousness. James goes on to talk about the Condemning nature of partiality, James chapter 2 verse 1. And when we get a divided mind to believe that there's some good that competes with God's good, it, it causes divisions in us and we begin to see everything in a divided way, even one another. But the second way that justice would be perverted that Moses is confronting here is not only from within in personal pressure, but also from without, external pressure. There were to be no bribes upon the judges. And if you read through the Old Testament and the prophets, you learn this, that judge after judge was either subject to personal preference or bribery. And it teaches us that that God's law provided a standard by which judges ruled and a standard by which they were held accountable because justice provided the means by which righteousness would be practically displayed in the world And it also reminds us that seeking justice does not mean that injustice never happens, but it does mean, and it always means, that it should never be ignored. Justice holds people accountable for their actions when justice is denied. So justice works against those who are in it working it. That's the very nature of the structure or system. Seeking justice is to fight injustice in its every form. It's more we learn from this that it's more of a process than an event. But it demands participation and accountability for the good of people because of the role that it serves, which we'll see in just a moment. The second distinctive in seeking justice is this. That seeking justice serves to uphold good and to restrain evil in the world. 
to uphold good and restrain evil in the world. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 8 through 13, overviews what I would call the process of justice and its effect on people, or how people are received when they can visibly see the process of justice taking place in our world. And it establishes that seeking justice holds a twofold effect upon people in order to produce hope within them. And the way it does that is that when it's practiced, that justice champions good among people, says this is good, and holds to that and guards that, but it also restrains evil. And when people see good being championed and evil being restrained, there is a hope that comes to them because even when things go wrong, there is a process to confront it and correct it. Proverbs 21.15 echoes this. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but it is a terror to evil doers. So often, even in the process, you will likely not see the full effect of this labor. But we understand that every aspect of this labor in seeking justice holds this two-fold benefit. The third distinctive Deuteronomy chapter 24 and 25, we learn that seeking justice always prioritizes protection and help for people. Protection and help for people. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 14 to 18 tells us that justice has an acute concern with the well-being of people. Why would that be? Why would the systems and the structures for righteousness demonstrated or justice in the world, why would that have an acute concern for the well-being of people? Well, if you go back to the beginning of this series, when we talked about the role of government and the responsibility of citizens, we learned this. It is the will of God for good on this earth to come to every person. That's God's will. And the very system and structure that his law sets up is for that good to be protected and defending so that people, their well-being can be established, so that they can flourish, so that they can produce and provide for themselves, so that they can produce abundance and give and be a blessing to other people. And so because of this, in prioritizing protection and help, it favors protection and help for the poor for the vulnerable, for the oppressed, and specifically for the marginalized in their place of need. This is what biblical justice does. That it actually looks at those that find themselves in an impoverished place, that are vulnerable to, uh, uh, to, to the evil acts of the world, that don't have the same amount of resources as others do, to those who are oppressed, to those who are marginalized, and it brings favor for the advancement of their well-being in that state. Such that it tells us it is a sin, not just against other people, but it is a sin against God that arises when helping a person in need is hindered. And it also tells us that when helping that person gets skewed to masquerade as help, 
but in fact does not help them. What is the law aiming to do in providing and prioritizing protection and help for people that are impoverished, that are vulnerable, that are oppressed, and that are marginalized in their need? It's saying this, that it is the will and the intent and the work of God in this world because every person is created in the image of God. It is God's will for you and the common good of humanity to do good, to produce good, to provide and to advance yourself so that you can be a blessing and your good can spill off on other people. And so the law and biblical justice holds an aim towards those who are impoverished and vulnerable and oppressed and marginalized to help them out of their place. And to move to a place that God intends for them in creation. Does that mean that they're lifted up and put somewhere? No. As we talked about the role of government, it means that the hindrances that are placed upon them are removed. And they are resourced to be able to provide, to produce as God created in Genesis 1 and 2. When he said, be fruitful and multiply, work and subdue the earth and exercise dominion. Every human being holds that command over their life to produce good and to provide it so that out of their own provision, they can do the same for other people. And these are the other people that they seek every individual to do that. For That's what the law is establishing, and we have to remember people's plight. It is essential for true justice that we do this so that we can grant favor and help in need to bring them to the advancement that God intends for them. And when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, it continues to tell us how justice is administered in its sentencing to be fair. So if we're going to champion good and we're going to restrain evil as we prioritize protection and help, we have to take this into consideration. And so in sentencing, specifically for law-breaking, it must be done only in proportion to the offense. That's how fairness is doled out according to the law. There is a proportionate sentencing to the conviction of the offense, whether it's in the form of punishment or whether it is in the form of repayment. There are two kinds that we understand. There is the accidental committal, where you break the law and you didn't intend to break the law, but you did. You weren't paying attention to your speedometer. At least that's what you told the policeman, right? Accidents happen. One of those is if a, if a man is chopping wood and the, uh, the head flies off the axe and hits his friend in the head and kills him, he's held responsibly different than if he took that axe maliciously to kill that man. And so the law has to be in proportion to the offense because not only is there accidental committal, but there's also malicious, intentional acts. And these are not one and the same. And all justice should reflect some measure of mercy. Some measure of mercy. Not stripping people of hope. People shouldn't enter the justice system with no hope that it will serve their good. And so the sentencing should reflect, reflect that in the way it is administered. As well as the way those things 
are decided. The fourth distinctive of biblical justice is that seeking justice means that Christians labor for true liberty by sharing Jesus with people. Now, this is where our Christian identity comes to fully bear upon laboring for justice in society. You see, justice that reflects God's character and His nature is in creation what points people to the one who alone is righteous. Very few people will dare to tell you they are perfect. And those who do, bless them and move along quickly. You don't want to be anywhere near them. Why? Because the law condemns us all. If we are guilty of breaking any one aspect of it, we are guilty under the weight of all of it. That's what the scriptures teach. But friends, justice that reflects God's character and nature as we've just laid out in the first three distinctives points people to the one who is righteous. That yes, there's a reason why we must champion good to, to appeal to the conscience of people that this is good and you should pursue this and also to restrain the seared nature of some people's conscience that just can't seem to do anything other than what is evil. And that's revealing God's heart, doing good and acting justly, pleases God as an act of worship, it tells us. There is no religious activity or sacrifice that is pleasing to God when it excludes justice being done. The Old Testament declares this. The prophets declare God's love for justice. Why? Because Jesus brings justice to the nation. When we labor for justice in society, we are testifying of the one who's coming, who is just and the justifier of all who are unjust. And so the prophets speak the word of justice like Micah and Isaiah and even Moses Moses, to declare God's love for justice because it is pointing to one who is coming to bring justice to the nations. Matthew uses Isaiah to show God's purpose for justice in the world, that it's not just about the good, that the good God gives to us in this world and every good gift comes down from the Father above, friends. There is no measure of good that's not or uh, that's not rooted and originated in the very character and nature and being of God. All good in the world is from the Father. But with the foundation of that, Matthew is telling us that people see that good and it gives hope to them. They can have a real understanding of themselves and understand that there is a need for something more. As a matter of fact, idolatry in every form originates when that good is turned into God and it's imposed upon to become an idol to substitute for God. You see, Jesus even condemned the Pharisees because of their neglect for justice. He says this, you're so religious that when you get ready to go to church every week, you pull out your spice rack and you pull out 10%. And you're going to tithe on your spices. Yet you are totally blind to the injustices of this world. And you don't even care that they exist. But you do know they're there. You see, friends, justice that produces good and hope guards freedom. And all of these are perfectly received in Jesus Christ. And that's why our laboring for justice is so important. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, in what I like to call his missional manifesto, he says that because we are new creations in Christ, we've been given the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation. 
He's telling us that our witness must align with our work. Or we cannot accomplish what we've been sent to do. This means that what gets called good in seeking justice must be in accordance to God's law. In accordance to God's law. Because when what is contrary to God's law is called good, it deceives people and it's damaging for them. When Christians labor for justice, we testify to the one who is just and to the fact that he is the justifier for all who believe in him. When we labor for justice, friends, we do so with the aim to point to the one who is eternally and perfectly just, Jesus Christ. Carl F. Henry, the theologian for whose idea is the subtitle of this entire series, says that the common core and hub of such a witness will be the the God of justice and justification, the God who demands right and who offers new life and joy for doing it. Why? Because we know the one who brings new life, who brings eternal joy, who brings hope that never perishes, spoils, or fades. This is not an easy work because the evil one who is so cunning and deceives with such acuteness is very good at what he does. But he is not ultimate in his power nor his authority. So seeking justice means that Christians labor to share Jesus to bring true liberty to people. That's why I say Christ's followers are both commanded and compelled by love to pursue justice in the world that demonstrates the righteousness of our creator God. Now we live with a mountain of social ills today that cry for biblical justice Every societal issue is crying out for justice that reflects and champions good and that refuses and guards against evil. From the issues of race and racism and systemic racism to sexual identity and gender confusion to education to poverty to drugs to trafficking to economic recovery to political ideology. All of these, friends, are areas where justice in society is critical for us to have a framework of the scriptural teaching of God's will in creation for people and to champion and to labor that so that we might speak a faithful word that is better, that is Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to address them all, but I'm going to address one that I believe is one of the largest and most critical issues That is threatening biblical justice in the world today. It is known as critical theory. And it has its interpretations as critical race theory as well. And intersectionality. And I want to talk to you about why this is so important for us to understand. Because it's confusing. It's confusing and can be, there's endless mountains of information to be read. But it has risen to great influence recently, though it's been around for years. And it provides the underpinning rationale for a great number of societal divisions that are being fueled today. And it's made a great inroad into the church. Critical theory is a theoretical framework in the social sciences that examines society and culture as they relate to categorizations of whether it's race or law or power. 
Intersectionality explores the interconnected nature of social categorization and orders the world by power structure. So what it does is it assigns labels to groups and then it assigns people to those groups so people are no longer considered individually but only by their group principally. The reason that critical race theory and intersectionality are so dangerous for Christians, listen to me, is because it's incompatible with the tenets of Christianity. It holds a measure of truth as all lies and deceit do, but ultimately it does not uphold truth. And by assertion and pressure, it redefines terms and it rewrites history to deconstruct the reality in a new norm following the path of secular humanism and postmodern philosophy. Critical race theory and intersectionality perverts biblical justice. Here's four very simple ways. By imposing presuppositions and dismissing or disavowing, yea, canceling any who disagree. Number two, it strips individual responsibility through group identity of which everyone is placed into a category and identified by that label. Number three, it fuels division among people along the lines of race, gender, economics, and otherwise. And number four, it subverts a biblical worldview with an alternate worldview that tells a meta story that removes the gospel as the meta narrative. Every field and discipline of society in the world today is being directly impacted by critical theory. You see, what it does is it calls for solidarity. Solidarity. And if you don't hold us, or if you don't hold solidarity with us, then we will cancel you. A number of years ago, I led a group of pastors into uh, southern France for impact partner development and alignment. And we're working with a number of, of nationals, French speaking people that lived in that area. And he's talking to me about French culture. And he says to me this, he says, the number one value of the, French, of the French culture is solidarity. And I went, solidarity? What, what are you talking about? He said, we hold that we stand in solidarity with one another as of the highest value. He wasn't embracing it, he's just instructing me in it. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, if you find someone else, you are quick to say, I stand in solidarity with you. And I said, well, but what if you disagree with them? He said, that doesn't matter, you don't tell them that. You just make sure that, they're, that you're standing in solidarity with them. I said, well, what are you in solidarity for? He said, whatever they're standing for. I said, well, that's interesting. He said, I, and so I said, but what, is, what if what they're standing for is wrong? He said, well, you don't have to get into that. The solidarity is based on individual relativity or relativism. So in other words, whatever is good for you, I'm with you. Right? And I don't really have to agree or embrace what you say. I just can't openly oppose it. Listen to the cause for solidarity today based on individual or, shall we say, group relativity. It's a truncation of redemption that you will not get to. Critical race theory and intersectionality are to biblical anthropology, the doctrine of man, what evolution is to the doctrine of creation. Now, that's my own surmising. So if I'm wrong about that, you can, you can attack me for that. It does to the doctrine of man what evolution has done to the doctrine of creation. 
And I'll say this, one of the reasons it's so readily received today is a demonstration. It's a measurement of how deeply evolution has ingrained into the mindset of the church to supplant the principles of creationism, to move it away from God by His design and place it on, at the very least, happenstance, at the very best, this wonderful imagination of humanity accumulating. It's a godless perversion that damages, it deceives, and it destroys. And it does all of that under the claims of the good from science. Critical race theory and intersectionality are prevailing, or the prevailing theory that's providing rationale for fueling divisions in our world, from condoning violence and riots, riots to defunding the police. Even there, you see how it directly opposes the fundamental issues of justice as set forth in the law of God. It condemns capitalism to celebrating communism. These are extremes, understand, and there's people on the spectrum anywhere in between. And from deconstructing structures of power and authority to rebuild around the narrative of oppression. And all of that is done in the name of fighting oppression. But there is no means of redeeming from that oppression. You see, critical race theory and intersectionality are neither necessary nor allowable for a Christian to act justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God because it subverts God's true justice in the world. Listen, friends, I don't want you to hear me saying that we've done everything right. That's anything but the truth. What critical race theory does is it feeds off of so many of the wrongs that the church has been complicit in. Our silence. And it identifies so many of the ways that we have been wrong. But it doesn't offer a solution to get out of it. And that's the problem with it in its essence. And so what must we do? To oppose it and stand at the opposite end of the spectrum? Absolutely not. But to embrace the things that it says about us that we know are true. The injustices against people of other races that have taken places. The oppression that has transpired. against To say that you don't think racism exists in the world is an absolute stupidity of statements. And there is much work to be done in this. But there's the right way to go about it if we're going to bear a faithful witness to God. Whether it's people impoverished, oppressed, vulnerable, or marginalized. That's who we're here for. But we have a better word in Jesus Christ. And so we denounce and we oppose vehemently those ideologies that stand in direct contrast and would seek to continue to move in the wrong direction. Like supremacy of one race over the other. Friends... Nothing could be more distasteful in the eyes of God and offensive to the Mago Dei that he has built in every nation, tribe, and tongue and in the construct of races that we have today. They are precious in God's sight. We learn that in nursery. All are precious in his sight. That's who we labor for. That's who we speak the better word for. Some Christian leaders today are saying the prophets condemned injustice. Therefore, we should side with the prophets. He's right about the biblical prophets. But those who are calling for justice today are too often calling for what is not biblical justice. And that makes it a false prophet. 
It's not easy. And it's not going to get easier. You know why? Because the evil one doesn't want it to. He wants to deceive us. He wants to condemn us. He wants to divide us so that he can fuel his kingdom in the midst of us. And we must stand and we must oppose that on either side that we find it. And we must fight through it to love one another in the practical expression of our love for God. You say, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to love people. That's the baseline beginning. Do something that God is calling you to do where you are, with whom you are with. Christ followers are commanded and compelled by love to pursue justice in the world that demonstrates the righteousness of our creator, God. We have a better word in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the word of our creator, God, who has come to redeem any who will believe in him. Let's pray.